Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Paris. This is a podcast, a weekly podcast of the China Africa Project, which is basically this endeavor that we have uh, with editors in Washington, in Cape Town, and hopefully in else, elsewhere around Africa, and of course me here in Paris. So every week we get together, talk about some of the key events, some of the key issues related to China's engagement in Africa. And to help me do this, as always, in uh, lovely Cape Town, South Africa, is Kobus Van Staden at the Stellenbosch University. Center for Chinese Studies. How are you today, Kobus? I'm very well, thanks. And you? Excellent. And then we also have uh, Anne Sherman, who's struggling with the, the power outages and the storms in Washington, D.C. And uh, I, 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 there, there's a chance you may drop off today, So, uh, but nonetheless, we're thrilled to have you here. Thanks for having me. Great. And we're just really thrilled today as our guest on the show to have Nick Francis, and that may be a familiar name to a lot of you who've seen his film, uh, Nick yeah. and Mark uh, Francis, the brothers, who put together uh, When China Met Africa. It's an amazing documentary film of the Chinese investments and the Chinese engagement in Zambia. Nick joins us from, I think you're in London today, right, Nick? That's right. Yeah. Good to be with you. Okay, great. Well, we've got three topics on the show today. We're going to talk first about uh, not the film per se, When China Met Africa, because it's been out for quite a while. We're going to talk about some of the discussions that Nick has been having around the film, and particularly in the, it's been about a year since it launched, I think, and, uh, and kind of where we are in terms of the, of the overall conversation related to the Chinese in Africa, particularly centered around natural resources, which will take us into uh, another topic uh, on that very same subject, around uh, a new book by uh, Dambisa Moyo, which also may be a familiar name, who's a Zambian herself, uh, former uh, international and a World Bank uh, executive, as well as I think she worked for Goldman Sachs. And she, uh, she has her new book that's raising, again, some very interesting topics and a little bit of controversy as well. And finally, we'll talk about uh, a somewhat unusual platinum deal that a Chinese company has made in South Africa. So let's get started right away with uh, with when met, when China met Africa. Nick, um, you know the the film came out. Remind me exactly when it came out again. Uh, two thousand. Well, it started its life uh, in two thousand ten. It was then released in the cinema in the UK in 2011, and now it's kind of available internationally on DVD and for download. Okay. So and and and, and concurrently there, with that we're doing, and it continues to be screened around the world at different, you know, events and um, screenings and so on. So, and, and I guess this is the, the key issue that I'm curious about, is when you go to these various screenings around the world, what are the types of questions and responses, and do they vary from continent to continent in terms of what people's curiosities are about the Chinese in Africa? Absolutely. I think that, that for us is like, often when you make a film, you start learning more about the film you've made when you start screening it. And perhaps when you went into it in the first place, because you're so informed by the kind of audiences who are engaging with the film in the first place. And I think um, it really, uh, if you like, reflects one of the big curiosities that we had, or one of the, actually the motivations we had going into this, which is particularly with China's engagement in Africa, you know, it's seen certainly in the West through such a one-dimensional prism that you know, the whole aim of the film was to try and open up and say, OK, if we're going to try and really understand this, let's try and look at this from some different perspectives. And that's why the film, you know, is centred around certainly two Chinese characters, two, you know, an entrepreneur and a project manager, and also the um, minister, the then minister for De uh, trade uh, in Zambia. But when, for example, we put it in front of a, an audience in the US, you know, it's, what essentially happens is the film becomes a mirror. And the questions that start coming up are around, if you like, 
Western engagement. What does it mean for us? What is the actual implications of China being in Africa, one? And two, most of the time, we find that whilst, and this is another, I think, key point, is whilst the issue of China being in Africa is increasingly well analysed, what you find is there's a massive deficit in trying to actually, or for people to actually see what it looks like as it plays out on the ground. Not necessarily being analytical, but what does it really look like at the grassroots? So beyond the figures and beyond the, the kind of academic framework that it sits in, how does a Chinese farmer, you know, interface with um, someone who's walking onto a farm and, 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 and trying to get a job, you know, at, at its most basic? And, and that's what most people, when they see the film, you know, seem to be most surprised about because they are seeing this for the first time. And that's where the kind of conversation um, it get, gets most interesting because it's like, you know, you're peeling away a, a massive layer. And then, and then it kind of, um, you know, I think that's where the most interesting part of the conversation kicks in. Now, I know that Anne and Kobus have a lot of questions, so I'll ask one more before I open it up to them as well. When you said the West, it's a very generic term. What's the difference between the reaction you've had, say, in Europe, particularly in those countries that have former, that are former colonial powers, and what you've experienced in the United States? Um, I th well, I think in some respects implicit in the question, when you, when you show it, you know, in, in, in Europe, you know, we, we've still got this massive baggage around our colonial history there. Um, it doesn't stop, incidentally. Uh, leaders, David Cameron did this when he was in uh, Nigeria year before last, when he decided to tell, you know, on, on, a, on a very significant uh, visit, uh, the, the, the audience gathered there to be wary of China's increasing engagement in the continent, almost forgetting, you know, our own history in, uh, throughout Africa. So, you know, it's totally, again, it reflects and the parallels are immediately drawn between what is the difference. And it's obviously now uh, 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 something which comes up time and again, what's the difference between our colonial engagement and what China is doing now? And it kind of, if you like, amplifies that debate. And, um, oh, when, when, when you, when, I was just going to say, when you show it in the US, who isn't, you know, perhaps, you know, not so bogged down in the same history, I think it's much more, raises much more of a question about, the, 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 the big the, the geopolitical shift in global power that's that seems to be much more of the debate and you know Africa now becoming if you like a uh, a microcosm for this, this this shift from west to east in the global power balance and that it's that part of the conversation that you see uh, playing out in the US I think they're the two distinct differences and I was just sorry Eric I, I, I just add but what cuts across both and this is really interesting is what, what binds Europe and the US particularly is a slight, you know, a, a, certainly for the last 20 years, very patronising way of even talking about Africa, Africa as this one monolithic um, idea almost. And, and that's common to both. Now, uh, particularly around the aid debate. Go on. Sorry. Absolutely. Now, Anne, you went to a screening of the film last week or the week before in Washington. Um, what was your sense on what the audience, kind of their reaction to it and what they thought of, uh, of some of the issues that were raised in the movie? I mean, I think that Nick just said it correctly. I think that the U.S., we kind of see this as, you know, our exceptionalism and our dominance and, you know, political influence, all these things in Africa kind of being challenged by the Chinese there. And it's really interesting, um, you know, the film gives you this kind of unique and rare look on what the human face of this relationship is, not necessarily, you know, what 
the U.S. media portrays it as, as something so negative and so, um, you know, invoking so much fear in Americans. Um, and I think that most of the questions um, that came out of the screening in Washington were about, you know, how does this undermine U.S. goals for good governments and democracy? And, you know, what does this mean for U.S. interests in Africa? So, I mean, I would be interested to know what the questions were, um, you know, from an African audience or a Chinese audience. Yeah. Well, shall I respond to that? Yeah. I mean, that's very interesting. When we've done screenings, when there's been a uh, significant uh, African audience, most people there, um, it, it shifts from more of an academic conversation to one where there's this sense and there's a big question around, is history repeating itself? Okay, in different dimensions. But when... Um, you know, people where they are from Zambia, frankly, or from where other other places, what we've experienced. You know, there's that there's a sense of almost like there's a sometimes an angry response when they see the way how you know the the, 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 the labour force are being treated. You know, be it on a, on a road project or on a farm, there's a sense that you know is something going to change, and and that then tacks onto what I think is a really critical and and perhaps less talked about. Um, issue around this whole debate, which is what are African leaders doing to really leverage this opportunity? Uh, so much of the commentary in the West is about China being the kind of predominant partner in the relationship, not less so the idea that actually this relationship is as much, I would say, is two-way, you know, and in the film, we follow the then Zambian Minister of Trade to uh, China, trying to, you know, capture as much Chinese investment into both the agricultural sector, but, you know, across the board in many of the sectors too. Um, that's, that, that, that part of the discussion isn't really spoken about. Um, and, 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 and so I think there's also that big question, what are our leaders doing to ensure that there's a degree of you know, equity within this relationship? Well, you've just hit one of Cobus and my, you know, you know, our, our kind of frustration points in the entire discussion around, you know, you know, the, the, the Chinese in Africa. And Cobus, you make the point all the time. And we, we talked about this after the, the BBC uh, Africa debate show, which was, you know, the burden. And sometimes it feels like a double standard is imposed on the Chinese. Uh, and again, this I'm not saying this in defense of the Chinese, more a critique of the debate and the discussion. And less is being said about what Africans are doing to ensure and African leaders and government are doing to ensure that the trade balance is actually fair. Kobus, uh, what, what are your thoughts on that and what Nick is saying? Yeah, it's, um, you know, kind of, I think, I think the, the, the kind of film makes that, makes that point kind of very well. Um, you, you know, kind of, um, it's, it's, I found it interesting how the workers were complaining, um, you know, kind of, but there wasn't really, it, there didn't seem to be kind of for them any kind of recourse, um, you know, kind of to no, no one to complain to. And, you know, kind of one of, one of the strengths of the film I found was one of, one of its very kind of simple elements, um, but, it, but it turned out very profound is the way that just what everyone says is just being subtitled all the time, you know, kind of, so you, it was fascinating to kind of hear, to, to kind of see people kind of speaking past each other um, and to see how many kind of problems are simmering um, in, in the relationship and never really get addressed, among other things, because the African states don't seem to be putting the kind of, uh, you know, infrastructure there for workers to actually get redress. I, yeah, I, I, think, I think that's actually one of the most interesting parts of this and also points to the um, where I think 
the potential for tension and where the the kind of the flashpoints exist in in the, the the point that you've just raised around the communication and how these issues are they dealt with are these simmering issues actually dealt with and if so how are they being dealt with or is the sense that they're actually going to just you know work themselves out i think that's one of the most critical points which you know we felt coming away from spending time observing it close up, observing that dynamic close up, you know, what's being done to address clearly, you know, what, what are major flashpoints or potential for flashpoints. And sometimes, obviously, we've seen it spill over in sometimes, you know, quite disastrous consequences, not just in Zambia, but, you know, in other places too. Now, the, the film... Can you oh, give go, us ahead, an, yeah. go ahead. Sorry, can, can, you, can you give us an idea of the kind of logistics involved in shooting the, the actual film? Like, you know, kind of how, how did you get, for example, get into the, the trade discussions with the Zambian minister and the, the Chinese counterparts? And, you know, kind of how, how did you manage to kind of uh, locate yourself in all these different places? Um, what the, the kind of short answer to that is it took a very long time. Um, and... But, but, you know, for us, it was absolutely critical to try and see that playing out rather than people talking about it, you know, after the fact. And it was literally just a long time spent talking about what we were trying to do and waiting around because so much of those scenes where you see, for example, the deals being signed and so on and so forth, or, you know, the, you know when we finally managed to get on a trip to China um, was basically just carving out the time um, to be able to to do it uh, and, and be be open to kind of dropping the hat at the last minute. But I think, and the other point um, is, you know, particularly, the, as I say, um, Felix Matati, the trade minister at the time, was very open um, to, 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 to us actually filming, um, filming what was going on for him. China represents a kind of cornerstone in um, Zambia's development. And therefore, uh, this, is, this is a story that needs to be told. It's a story which he would also argue is so misunderstood, particularly in the West. Uh, by the time we actually uh, made this film, there was, there was some very, uh, I would say, uh, narrow point narrow news reports which didn't really give much expression to the complexity of the relationship so there was a real sense that you know once we tried to explain what we were trying to do that was the most difficult thing you know because you know this is an observational documentary uh which plays out you know over quite a period of time in real time um and that's not something there's not like a tradition of observational documentary filmmaking in zambia and therefore to try and say look we're not coming in as journalists to do a report we're actually trying to bear witness to how this plays out. That was the, the biggest challenge to try and convey that to the relevant authorities. Now, the name of the movie is When China Met Africa, but you focus uh, exclusively on the relationship in Zambia. And one of the issues that uh, that we've discussed a lot on the podcast is, is is what I'm kind of, you know, artificially calling Zambian exceptionalism in that, you know, because the presence of Michael Sada, because it's an Anglophone country, because it's really been a focal point and a flashpoint in the, in the Sino-African relationship, how much of what you see happening in Zambia is reflective of what's happening across the continent or is a better title for the film when China met Zambia, in part because of the unique conditions in Zambia due to the leadership, the environment, the people, and whatnot? I think that's a really interesting question. And actually, that has come up in a couple of um, 
screenings and, and discussions we've had. But for us, it's not really in, in, in kind of film terms to take it too literally. Um, this is a jumping off point. And the, 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 if you like, the, 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 the stories that ended up being in the film, we wanted actually not to root the film too um, particularly in the Zambian context, even though it's set in Zambia. So that's why um, there's not much made in the film of the kind of the, 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 those specific stories that you're referring to. You know, there could have been a whole piece in there about the presidential election. In fact, that's when we were there. That was all very much part of the debate. But we wanted this to be as much as possible as a story that could be playing out in other countries. And it's true to say that there are farmers like Mr. Liu, you know, uh, right across the continent in their thousands. It's, it's, it's true to say that the company that we followed, um, China Hanan, is present in, you know, both West Africa and North Africa and South Africa. And what was also interesting about the Zambian minister of trade at the time, um, and this was uh, became quite clear when we were in China with him, is the work he's doing and the amount of times he's going to China is replicated by his counterparts right across the continent. Interesting. You know, one of the, one of the memories we have particularly is being in Xiamen, a coastal city um, in, in, in China at, this, uh, uh, at a big trade conference. And, we, 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 you know, we observed one uh, meeting where there was a room full of Chinese entrepreneurs and representatives of multinational Chinese companies listening to one trade minister from Africa after another or trade representative trying to, if you like, sell in the benefits of their respective country to say this is the incentive of investing in Mali or Chad or the Ivory Coast or South Africa or Zambia or wherever it might be. And that for us was a really interesting moment to see that, you know, what you're seeing in this film, the work being done by the minister is actually happening right around the continent and does throw up a really other massive issue, which is, um, at the end of the day, all countries in Africa are competing for Chinese investment. There isn't necessarily, and I'm not suggesting there should be, but there isn't a kind of coordinated approach of dealing with China, you know, and, there, and that, that kind of, I think, in some respects, some would say works in China's favour because they're able to kind of, you know, leverage one deal against another... Yeah, one, one, one preferential investment opportunity in Zambia against something happening next door in Tanzania or wherever. I think that's a really interesting thing to bear in mind in this. Well, let's use this as a jumping off point of our own here and to kind of transition from some of the key issues that you've raised from the film into Dambisa Moyo's new book. Now, Dambisa Moyo, for those who are not familiar, she, uh, you know, she's something of a provocateur now. And uh, she, she's got a Ph.D. from, I think it's Oxford. She's got a, you know, a glistening resume with the World Bank, Goldman Sachs and whatnot. And she wrote a book called Dead Aid, Why Aid is Not Working and How There's a Better Way for Africa. And that really ruffled a lot of feathers, particularly in the multi-billion dollar aid business that, you know, I've been a longtime critic of for, for its lack of effectiveness. And I welcomed, you know, Dembisa's book in terms of being one of the first to kind of say the emperor really doesn't have any clothes. Well, she's trying to do that again now. And she came out with a book called Winner Take All, China's Race for Resources and What It Means for the World. And uh, she's got a very Malthusian approach in the book. And again, I will admit that I have not read the book, but read a lot of the coverage from it. Um, 
And it's this idea that because of shortcomings in China's economic system, because it lacks the resources, because it lacks some of the efficiencies in its own economy, it is now going to Africa. And in fact, if it does what it wants to do, according to Moyo, um, there simply are not enough resources in Africa or anywhere to satisfy the Chinese. They will suck it all up. And it's, she's trying to sound the alarm bells. Uh, you know, Kobus, when you when you hear, um, you know, you know, Dembisa Moyo sounding the alarm, do you kind of get the sense that that she's on the right track? Is she being alarmist? Is she just trying to be that provocateur? Is she, what, what's your reaction? What's the reaction of what you get from the perspective of, say, at least academics at Stellenbosch or other folks in, uh, in South Africa? Well, <clears throat> you know, kind of, I haven't really discussed this with, with um, you know, kind of other, you know, kind of counterparts with me at, um, at Stellenbosch, but what, what strikes me, she, she takes on a very kind of interesting, you know, kind of position because on the one hand, she is... Um, quite, as you say, quite Malthusian or quite kind of alarmist about where we're heading. And she's very kind of, you know, kind of strongly saying, for example, we're heading towards more resource wars, you know, kind of this is going to be like, you know, kind of warfare around resources going to define our, our reality in the future. At the same time, she doesn't, she isn't taking the kind of classic, uh, you know, kind of greedy China kind of approach in the sense that she, she seems to be kind of full of kind of admiration for China. Um, and, you know, kind of taking a, you know, kind of, she has quite a lot of praise for China and she's, you know, kind of she in, in interviews she's been saying that China's pretty much just doing what they should, which is, you know, kind of maintaining, you know, trying trying to maintain kind of high economic growth and trying to maintain uh, economic stability within their own country, and for that they need resources. Um, so it, it struck me as kind of she, she's taking what was struck me as kind of a very African approach, you know, kind of because you know, kind of on the one hand, the kind of from a from a kind of a wide perspective, the resource fight is worrying, but from a particular African kind of perspective is fantastically good news, um, you know, kind of in the sense that, you know, kind of for the first time, African countries are growing at, you know, kind of gangbuster rates, you know. So that was very interesting for me. She, she seems to be speaking from a, a different kind of position, but it's sometimes hard to pin down what that position is. You know, uh, Anne, as, as Nick mentioned that, you know, she's, she's on a, a media tour and she's kind of, I've been watching some of the coverage of, uh, of what she's been doing in the States and also in Europe, and she seems to be having two very different types of conversations, one in Europe, which is a more sophisticated one, and one in the U.S., which is really just dumbed down to its most basic level. She was on Morning Joe, the MSNBC show, uh, and, you know, and it just really didn't seem like they understood. And, you know, they, it was almost this attitude, and I'm, you know, I'm obviously going too far with it, but oh, isn't that so cute that the Chinese are going to Africa? But at the end of the day, the Africans still love us more than anybody else, right? And, uh, you know, and so that, and, and MSNBC, in fact, ran an article, which we'll talk about a little bit to that effect as well. What do you get the sense when, so I'm going to ask the same question I asked of Kobus to you, when she's sounding these alarm bells and uh, in, in places like the U.S., what do you get the, the reaction, particularly in a place like Washington, would be? I mean, I think from the U.S., we still see ourselves as the biggest player in Africa. And China might be more dynamic now, but I think that when, I think that at first Copas makes a good point. You know, she's saying, she's, you know, sounding the alarm about the China's hunt for resources, but at the same time, she's saying that trade and not aid is the best thing to help African growth. So in a way, she's afraid of it, but also thinks it's the solution in some sense for Africa. Um, but I thought that the way that she phrased, um, you know, that China's motivations in her article, um, you know, that China's motivations were pure, unlike maybe the U.S.'s motivations. I thought that was um, not sure how I, if I agree with her. I don't know if, you know, this 
kind of war for resources is necessarily more pure than Americans' strat- you know, strategic interests in Africa. And I don't know if there's really that much of a difference be- between what China is doing in Africa than what the U.S. is. I mean, a lot of the projects and investment that China makes in Africa still do create dependence. And we see now that as China's economy is slowing, Africa is clearly very dependent on Chinese investment and Chinese trade. The article that Anne is referring to is called Beijing, a Boon for Africa. It was a, an op, uh, opinion piece in the New York Times on June 27th, 2012. You know, Nick, when, on this question that Anne brought up about the, the inconsistencies in, you know, what, what the U.S. Is, is taking advantage of its place in Africa, that, you know, I'm not sure they're doing exactly the same thing, in part because the Chinese don't have special operations forces. They're not launching drones. They don't have military bases there. Um, you know, they're not, uh, they're not pumping in billions of dollars of aid. They're engaged, definitely. But this is the this is the key question for me: is that you know the U.S. and the Chinese both have very, very huge, in, you know, large interests in in the region, but yet they're both treated in very, very different terms. What? How do you approach that? Well, I, I think that actually is the the heart of why when you talk to you know say people in politi- politics in Africa or people in business. The, that, I think that's why China's getting a much more um, a warm reception because of the attitude it goes into the continent with. In some respects, a little bit more open and frank. Uh, that is to say, we're here to do business. And the knock-on effect of that business is that, you know, it's gonna, uh, you're going to see roads being built because we need to get these resources from here, uh, you know, from A to B. Uh, that's not the language which has been used by um, the U.S. or, or Europe. Yeah, but, but just, just on that point, if I can interrupt you, I'm sorry. But, you know, the British, when, you know, in, in Kenya, they, the only roads that they built were from the mines to the port. Um, so yes. isn't there a parallel? I mean, when, when, when I hear you say that, I think that's where the colonialism parallels come up, that they're only there for resources, that they're not there to benefit or help uh, anybody else other than their own profit and bottom lines. And, and that argument, because they've, a lot of African countries in the colonial periods have seen this play before, and sure. they know how it ends. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's, it is an important parallel, but I think, that, and, and therein lies the point, which is to say, um, it, it, certainly if you look at the, the, the attitude taken, you know, post, in, in the post-colonial period, um, and that's the comparison I was, I suppose, seeking to, 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 to draw. The language used by Europe and the U.S. is that bit of, you know, we're here to help. Um, but actually that help um, is perhaps disguising a much wider self-interest. And that's obviously what aid has done um, and the whole issue around good governance and so on. It's, you know, behind the, uh, the aid business, if you like, is, 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 is strategic interests. And the difference and this is the only, I, I guess, the point I'm making, is I don't think China pretends that what they're doing is anything other than A, strategic interests, or B, um, a, a kind of economic relationship. It's not dressed up as um, we're here because we are um, really concerned about what's going on. It's not dressed up as in the same, um, with, the, with the same discourse around development. This is, you know, obviously roads need to be built if we're going to engage economically with you. Uh, that was also one of the things that we, you know, uh, was so striking to us when we were with people actually there building the roads. They found it absolutely staggering that despite the billions of dollars of aid that's come in from the West, how is it that 
said taking Zambia, you know, one of the, the, the one of the main roads, which almost is like an artery of the country, is in a state of total disrepair, despite the fact of so much development money that's gone into the country. And I just think there's a total different approach. And that's something, go back to your earlier question, um, which neither the US or Europe can quite understand, because I think we're still yet to actually say and ask much more open questions about how does China see it? What is China's perspective? And if, you know, it's almost like we're, we're really slow on the catch-up. And it just, I just feel that there needs to be a slight turning point where policymakers in the West, particularly, whether that's Europe or, or, or the US, start asking different questions. Yeah. Well, I have one other um, question about um, kind of this point, which is that, you know, Dimbiso Moyo, she says that one of the main reasons that African governments can stay in power is because they've been relying on foreign aid. And this is, you know, this is one of the reasons why aid is so bad. It's kind of um, allowed these leaders to not be accountable. Um, but, you know, I think that China is also, you know, through its investment and, you know, no strings attached policy working with any country, it's also helping a lot of these African leaders stay in power and kind of, you know, many of these African uh, leaders are using the Chinese projects um, kind of to their advantage and to gain domestic support. I actually have a, you know, kind of have a, want to take a, you know, kind of a, the kind of flip side of that, <clears throat> um, you know, in the sense, yes, um, you know, kind of, I think, uh, I think that's very true. Um, on the other hand, kind of China is also weirdly involved in a kind of a massive Africa-wide project of, of, of getting African nations to, or kind of being involved in African nations kind of self-imagining, you know, kind of, so we, we were talking about, um, about the, them building um, soccer stadiums, for example, you know, kind of, and in a kind of an aid, um, you know, European kind of aid paradigm, a soccer stadium would always be seen as this kind of this kind of decadent kind of thing that no one can really use. Um, but I think from a, from a kind of African perspective, you know, kind of in order to to kind of imagine yourself as an actual country in the actual world, those kind of symbolic infrastructure kind of projects are necessary. And in a weird way, to kind of you know, kind of China is weirdly kind of facilitating this kind of state building within Africa or some kind of symbolic state building in Africa. Africa, maybe, I, you know, kind of, I'm not sure whether I'm correct, but, you know, that that's the feeling I'm getting. Go ahead, Nick. Oh, Nick? Yeah, no, sorry, just cut out the, the, uh, uh, towards the end of uh, what Kobus was saying. Sorry. Well, Kobus, just quickly, you know, summarize the last point of what you were saying so that Nick can respond. Yeah, it's just, um, you know, just saying that, um, you know, kind of in a weird way, kind of because China simply provides infrastructure, what they're actually building is, uh, you know, kind of the designers of that infrastructure are Africans. And so, you know, kind of so they, they facilitate a kind of an African self, self-imagining, um, you know, kind of through infrastructure, um, you know, kind of that, that makes it easier for Africans to see themselves as actual states and not, not as dysfunctional states, but as real states, um, you know, and, and uh, and that kind of might have a kind of a fallout in the future or for a kind of a, a benefit in the future. Yeah. No, I, well, I, I think that, again, raises another, another really interesting point about the, the synergy between both. And, and, and I guess what you're pointing to is, is, the, is the way how, um, the, if you like, the lines between the, the political apparatus in African countries per se and the way how China's infrastructure and development informs the way how that can be played. 
Yes, yes, and also the kind of effect that it then has on on citizens' feeling and actual kind of you know kind of uh, a membership of the state rather than, for example, ethnic groups. Yeah, no, I, I, and and you know what I what I would add to that is, and and you know, that's again why you know, Zambia becomes an interesting example because you can see how, you know, um, despite the fact that China says you know we're not actually um, we don't have a position on the political uh, reality in any country. Um, the way how China's investment actually does become used by, for good or for bad, um, politicians in um, across the continent, whereby they can point to the kind of infrastructure you're, you know, describing uh, as a way to, you know, uh, demonstrate the improvements that they've brought into the country. The book is Winner Take All, China's Race for Resources and What It Means for the World, written by Dambisa Moyo. We've tried to get her on the show. She has turned us down all once, but I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm persistent, if nothing else, so we're going to try to get her back on again. Now that our listenership is exploding with popularity, she might uh, deign to come and join us. But uh, interestingly enough, <laughs> she does uh, you know, raise some very provocative issues, and it's, uh, it's a book I'm looking forward to listening to. And again, it's a companion in many ways with Nick's, Nick and Mark's film, uh, When China Met Africa. Our final topic the, today is is an unusual resource deal, and we're on this theme of, of resource deals. And, you know, the Chinese announcing a multi-million dollar, hundred million, two hundred million dollar, you know, natural resource deal, a mineral deal is really, you know, that's that's a weekly event. But what makes this deal by Jin Chuan of, uh, and I'm going to ask for uh, for Cobus's help here with uh, Weizui, is that how you say it? Weizui? Uh, Weizui. We, we, Weizui, okay. Um, yes. Which is the largest platinum, uh, if, I'm, if I'm correct, the largest platinum them mining company in South Africa. South Africa itself... I think it's, I think it's one of the largest. One of the largest, the okay. Largest. Impala is the largest. Well, in, in, in one of the... Making it in the top five still is a very big deal in South Africa in part because South Africa is 80% of the globe's platinum, and uh, so... And they paid $227 million for a 45% stake. What's critical about this is that that was a 23% premium over the next best offer. So the Chinese paid a huge amount of money for a mine at a time when platinum is doing very, very well, but the industry in terms of the price of platinum is doing very well, but the industry and analysts are just expressing a little bit of bewilderment over the fact that the this is not a great investment at this time. And so, you know, Cobus, when, when you look at a deal like this and you scratch your head thinking, what are they doing? Is this because the Chinese are really smart and taking a long-term view on things that we may not understand? Or is it because they've got just cash burning in their pockets that they have to get rid of and they actually may be really dumb. Where, where do you think the answer is on, in, in between these two on this story? Yeah, there's a, this is a this is a real you know remember that spinal tap line. There's a fine line between clever and stupid. It's, it's this <laughs> is where we we're standing on that line. Um, the you know the, the, one of one of the biggest kind of um, news points of this deal is that not only did they pay 227 million for 45 percent of of the of the existing mines, they are promising 877 million dollars to develop a new greenfield like mine and take into account this is this is a mine that's going to be have shafts of a, a kilometer deep um and uh you know kind of built from scratch there's at the moment there's basically grass and trees where that mine is supposed to be um and you know kind of they're, they're stepping into a market that's basically in disarray they're kind of um the top three uh you know kind of um 
producers in South Africa are all cutting back. Um, Aquarius, which is an Australian um, platinum producer in South Africa, has recently shut down a, two two whole mines. Um, you know, kind of another another big producer is, is having massive kind of union problems. Um, keep in mind that over that that um, the the platinum platinum price has been rising for decades, um, and with that the the platinum uh, kind of mine you know mine um, salaries have been rising at the same time, and this is the first time in a decade that that these miners mine workers are going to see a salary increase that's not in the double digits. So the whole of of the the commodity sector in South Africa is bracing for wildcat strikes and chaos. Um, you know, kind of in, within this kind of, you know, kind of Jintran is stepping in and, you know, kind of developing their first, not only their first kind of mine of this kind, their first mine with a, with a kilometer deep shaft, building it from scratch. Like, it's, it's, they either have a very strong vision or we're not sure what they're doing. Well, and this question of labor is one that we, that's come up on a number of Chinese investments in South Africa, whether it's in the auto industry and shipping and a number of different areas. And the Chinese are going to have to navigate, you know, Africa's most advanced, most aggressive labor unions that are there. So that will be one... in. in you know, area to watch. Uh, you know, you mentioned the price of platinum. It's at about $1,500 an ounce. That's triple what it was over the past 10 years. So so there is some potential. Platinum, of course, is a very valuable mineral being used in, in auto manufacturing, obviously in jewelry, and there's lots of different uses for it. So, Nick, here's here's the question that I have, which is, you know, the Chinese have managed in, in the rare earths market to corner some 93% of it, not only in Africa, but also domestically in China. Do you get the sense when you see when you hear deals like this um, that the you know the culture of business in China is very very different? Um, there's a great expression that I love, which is the Chinese can't wait for a red light, but they can wait for a hundred years, and and it's this idea that they have a longer term view that we may be missing. So while none of this makes sense now, from the labor issues to the environmental issues to the challenge of the technology of the mine, to the price of the the deal itself. To them, it makes sense because they're not looking at this in terms of two and three and four quarters or even years. They're looking at a hundred-year time frame. Absolutely. And therein is the fundamental difference between China's engagement in Africa and you know, the West's, the uh, US, Europe, however, engagement. That, that's the, the, the single most important thing which I think separates um, or, or defines the different kinds of engagement. And with the long-term view becomes a totally different appreciation of risk. That's another thing, which I think is totally um, embedded within the same um, part of this. So, you know, you take the, the platinum mine, uh, they're paying over the odds. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you take the long-term view, that'll kind of even itself out down the line. Um, if you look at the kind of deals that were being made, or those... Uh, for you know, take another example, when the at the height of the economic crisis, when some of the Western mining companies left Luantia, uh, a big mine in, in Zambia, it was China who went in and bought up um, what was going to need hundreds of millions of pounds worth of investment, even just to get it back to you know uh, a, a productive mine. Uh, Long term view, and if you and 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 I just think that's abs- and and even you can look. So I don't think this is just about resources. If you look at the the the, the, the bids that are being made um, for you know for, for road projects that go out to tender, and again, you, in, in when China and Africa, we, we see a road project which essentially uh, was halted because the government lost out. Um, you know, they, they ran out of funds, but the company would take the long term view. We might lose X millions now, 
but in five years' time, that'll come back to us because we're stuck with it. And and I think, you know, it's interesting that the point you're making that Cobus was talking about with the overbidding, because another part of their competitive advantage, you know, one part of this is overbidding, but I think the other thing which, again, enables them to often outmaneuver um, uh, their Western counterparts or competitors is the fact that when tenders go out, and often they're by the World Bank, for example, they're able to undercut their competitors, you know, nine times out of ten. And that's why so many of the World Bank infrastructure projects happen in Africa are being won by Chinese companies because they're able to, you know, um, un- outbid them time and time again uh, by, by saying we can deliver the job for cheaper and quicker. And I'm going to give the final word to you on this subject, but Nick brought up this idea that we in the West really struggle to understand this long-term timing. And, you know, no one is worse at this than Americans because we are, you know, minute to minute. It's one of our strengths in many ways, but it's also one of our long-term weaknesses. What do you get the sense is that when in a place like Washington, at when you are at the congressional hearings, for example, and when you go to the various events and you talk about the Chinese in Africa, is there any sense that, that the people in power and the thought leaders on this subject in Washington have any appreciation? or understanding for this? I mean, I actually think that the the perspective of the Americans now is that they're not sure that China is really in Africa for long term. They think that China's just here to extract resources. They have short, short-term contractors. They come, they do the project, they get their resources, and they leave. And I think that that was one of the most impressive parts of your film, Nick, is that it kind of showed, especially with Mr. Leo's son and how he planned to give the farm you know, to his son eventually and pass it through generations and things like that. It really showed the mindset of the Chinese and how this really isn't you know, just a, a short-term profit turnover. It's really strategic and, um, you know, more complex and that the Chinese are really there to stay. So, Anne, if you, if you, that could be a massive miscalculation on the Americans' part then that, and I'm using Americans in a very broad sense here, but that, you know, that if they think that the, the Chinese are in and out, you know, in that sense, then that they're not going to be there for the long term, then they can say, I don't have to worry about anything right now because, you know, when China leaves, we'll step back in again or we'll always be there. Right. No, it's definitely true. And we see just last week, actually, um, the Congress failed to uh, to repass AGOA, which is the main U.S. Uh, kind of support of uh, That's U.S. The African, African growth, trade. African Growth and Opportunity right. Act. Right. And, and I, I mean, I think this is sort of a, a huge miscalculation by the U.S. And um, that was one of the reactions to Danby Samoya's piece is that the U.S. has kind of sat on the sidelines and watched China uh, enter Africa and, um, you know, our trade has kind of failed. And here's China with this new approach. And what is the U.S. doing? We're not, you know, we're not focusing on Africa. We focus on these negative headlines, but we don't really see the opportunity um, and clearly Really, China does. Okay. Uh, well, the article is uh, in Asia Times Online, and uh, Anne is going to take some of these articles and put them up on our Facebook page for, for your reference. It's called uh, China's Jinchuan Takes Platinum Gamble, written by uh, Gavin uh, Duvenage. I'm not sure if he's French or not, but uh, it's an interesting piece, and it, it kind of raises some of the touches on some of the issues that we've touched on in the show. Um, that'll do it for this edition of the show. Before we go, uh, Nick, we always kind of do a plug for everybody and their various Twitter accounts and the various ways that people can follow. So you, um, the movie is available at whenchinametafrica.com. Uh, people can either buy a DVD or download it. How much does it cost to download, just out of curiosity? 
Um, now it's probably about $5. And uh, if, if there are people listening, you can actually embed the player on uh, your own site. And people coming to the site can actually just, whether it's on a Facebook page or a blog or a website, can actually download the film directly uh, without leaving your website and just go through and do the, um, you can just, you know, embed the, embed the player directly in your site. So it can carry that conversation on without having to go elsewhere. Excellent. Well, we'll be doing that on the ChinaAfricaProject.com website. But in the meantime, tell us where people can learn more about what you're doing on Twitter and on Facebook and whatnot. Um, the, uh, uh, if you go to SpeakIt01, at SpeakIt01, that's where you can see screenings and so on and so forth. Um, uh, that's where you kind of post details of screenings. And the, uh, the website is SpeakIt.org. Um, for you know some more information, but the um, the film's website is whenchinamadafrica.com, and again screenings and other information is posted on posted on there too. And you're continuing screenings, you know, going on around the world, uh, even uh, all the time. It's um, you know, and it's, it's run runs and runs. A lot of the things. I was just going to add one point. This is the most surprising thing, and I think for people who spend a lot of time looking at China Africa. Um, it can sometimes come as a surprise to us that you often is the case. I meet people and you'll be met with a reaction, which, which is something like, I didn't realize there are any Chinese people in Africa at all. Yeah. And that goes to the very heart of why podcasts like this and others are so important to kind of, you know, widen the conversation around this. And certainly that's what we're trying to do with the film, um, you know, to, to kind of it just uh, attest to the fact that there's such a massively un misunderstood or under under. Uh, discussed area for so many people. Well, we're just thrilled that you were able to join us today and, and really appreciate and wish you the best of luck with the screenings that uh, that are ahead. Kobus, uh, tell us where we can find you and follow you on Twitter. Um, I'm at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E. Okay. And Anne, of course, is uh, the voice behind our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And if Anne, people want to follow, follow you on Twitter, what's the address that they need to go to? They can find me at ansher07, so A-N-N-E-S-H-E-R-07. Excellent. And you can also find me at uh, E-O-Lander, that's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting almost every day uh, on China-Africa subjects. Also, just wanted to let you know we've got a couple new enhancements to our website at the ChinaAfricaProject.com. We've uh, got a new academic papers section where uh, a lot of the best writing on the subject uh, is, is, is in the academic world, but it doesn't really get out very much. So we're, um, we're actually pirating a whole bunch of papers, which I'm, we were talking about earlier. I'm expecting some very furious dean to call me to ask them to take it down. But, you know, as Nick said, the goal here is to try and expand the conversation. So until the deans tell me to take it down, we're going to keep publishing some of these papers that are up there. So I invite you to check that out. We're also doing something called the uh, the China Africa Newswire, where every week we're kind of summarizing the key headlines into a single uh, note, and uh, that'll start going into a newsletter product that'll go out in the next couple weeks. So keep your eye out for to sign up for that newsletter. In the meantime, you can get it on the website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Thank you so much for listening and joining us today. Uh, we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thanks a lot. <laughs>